90% of startups fail. Just 10 out of every 100 last. Mercury exists to close that gap with banking engineered for the startup journey to offer a product crafted to help you scale with safety and stability, to go beyond banking and provide access to the foremost investors, operators, and tools, so more startups become success stories. Join over 100,000 companies banking with Mercury at mercury.com. Mercury is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group and Evolve Bank & Trust. Members FDIC. So how would you like to be addressed, professor or doctor or how? Well, Dr. Goodall? You can either call me just Jane or you okay. can call me Dr. Jane if you wish for the first time. All right. Anything but Dame Jane. <laughs> if there's one person who can wrangle an alpha male, it's Jane Goodall. She's been studying them and other chimpanzees since the 1960s. Her early research with famed archaeologist Louis Leakey made Goodall a star. That resulted in a decades-long career which has focused the world on environmental activism and has inspired generations. Leonardo DiCaprio and Prince Harry are fans. Greta Thunberg calls her a true hero. Goodall normally travels about 300 days a year, but when I spoke to her, it was from her home in England. She was in lockdown and had some time to tell me about how it all began. Well, the reason I got to Kenya uh, was because I'd always wanted to go and live with wild animals and write books about them ever since I was 10, reading Tarzan. So I saved up money when I was invited by a school friend to Kenya And when I was staying with her, somebody said, if you want to learn about animals, you should meet Louis Leakey. So although I was very shy, that's what I'd come for. So I called him up. And this is kind of weird, but two days before I met him, his secretary had suddenly quit. He needed a secretary. And there I was and gave me a job. And I think he was impressed because I'd read everything I could about African animals. I think it was then that Leakey decided, well, she hasn't been to college, she's new from England, but she's the person I've been looking for to go and study chimpanzees. So when you went there, you went in as a secretary. Did sexism persist then at the time where women couldn't be doing these jobs or did you perceive it at all? Or you just, this is the skill you had and you went in? Well, you know, back then it was so different. I mean, the times were different and the feminist movement hadn't really started or impacted us. And so, yeah, I was his secretary. Almost all, but not quite, of the staff were men. But it was fine. And luckily, Leakey had decided that women might be more patient in the field and make better observers. So you see, the fact that I was a woman helped. So let's talk a little bit about the, the observational skills that you had, because your whole job was to be present with the chimpanzees. Go, go back to then. Well, I mean, I came out with my mother because the authorities wouldn't allow me to go alone. That's why she came. But I went into the field with a pencil, often a pencil because it was raining, and a little notebook that fitted in my pocket, and a little piece of polythene that I put over my head if it rained, and a pair of 
binoculars, which weren't very good. They weren't good enough because we had so little money. I mean, we had one secondhand army tent. Uh, we had a few pots and pans and, and tins of food. And that was it. I started just climbing up and down the hills and looking for the chimps and writing everything with my pen, writing it up at night. And, you know, at first, the chimps took one look at this peculiar white ape and ran away. It was really awful. I was really glad of my mother because she helped to boost my morale because the chimps just went on running away. And I knew if I didn't see something exciting before that money ran out, it was only for six months. When you look back at that, you talked about as the best times of your life. It, was that How would it have been different if you were doing it today? Well, the trouble is that we've now learned that animals can catch diseases from us and we can catch diseases from them and that our presence can interfere with behavior. So to do things with camera traps and so on is the way to go. But the reason I say they're the best days of my life, today we wouldn't do a study like that. We wouldn't hand out bananas. It's not the thing to do. But back then, it was the accepted thing to have a feeding station. That's what people did. And because we started the banana feeding, it meant that I could follow their development almost daily. And I don't think today anybody can learn them exactly the way I did. Can you talk about that connection? How do you remember it now, 60 years later? Well, I remember that uh, when I was out there in Gombe, and I spent, of course, a lot of time out in the forest with the chimpanzees, but they accepted me. So I could sit there. I never considered myself part of a group, but I was just... Uh, somebody was there observing them and they weren't afraid. And because they accepted me so totally, I had the freedom of seeing how they really interacted with each other. And so criticism has been, well, maybe the banana feeding affected their behavior. And I'm sure it did to some extent, but it affected them all equally. And right from the beginning, my emphasis was on differences between individuals, which wasn't accepted back then. And it's the same today. People don't like to think of animals as individuals, but as species. And you gave them names, which was resisted by people at the time. When Leakey wrote, we must redefine man because of the observations you made and brought back. What do you think was the most important about redefining? Oh, well, I, I know how this began. One chimp, I named him David Greybeard. He had a beautiful white beard, and he was very handsome. And on this one day, when he'd begun to lose his fear before the others, I wasn't that close to him. And I still had to use my binoculars, but he didn't run away. And I saw him breaking off and using grass stems to fish for termites. I saw him breaking off leafy twigs and carefully removing the leaves to make a tool. And that brought in the National Geographic Society to give money when the first six months ran out. That brought in my husband, Hugo van Lauwe, to, to film, Geographic sent him. And that was the turning point of the entire, you know, but for that, maybe after six months, everything would have ended. What was, to explain to people who don't understand why that's a big deal. People have seen chimpanzees manipulate various things. Why is that so important? Well, because of how science defined us. Up to that time, we had been defined by Western science. And I repeat Western science because 
Other parts of the world were so different in their relationship to animals. But anyway, as man, the toolmaker. When it was when Leakey heard about this tool using and tool making, he wrote to me and said, Now we must redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as humans. And actually, if you want to know now what I believe is the biggest difference between us chimps, I mean, we know so much about animal intelligence now, but you know, the main difference, I believe, is that at some point in our evolution, we developed language, spoken language. Okay, chimps communicate, they have gestures, they have calls, whales communicate, birds do too. Um, Chimps can learn a human language, so can parrots, but chimps and parrots haven't learned a spoken language, not that we know of. And so once we developed this spoken language, we were for the first time able to bring people together to discuss a problem teach about things that weren't present with language. And I think that triggered this explosive development of our intellect that's taken us to the moon, to Mars, that's helped people understand the place of planet in the galaxy, in the solar system. If you had to go back, what is the thing that stayed with you? And perhaps what is the sound you remember and the sight if you had to remember all this many years later, decades later? Oh my goodness. Well, the sight climbing up onto my peak, which I discovered, and looking out over the valleys to Lake Tanganyika, looking behind me to the peaks of the Rift Valley. So beautiful, so untouched in those days. The sound would be the calling of chimpanzees on the other side of a valley, those chimpanzees you've been searching for and hoping to hear and hoping to find, and you hear them on the other side of the valley, and you think, yes, there they are. So this, the, the pantu, the distance call, which is something like, and that, to me, you know, it does something to me. It just comes deep into me. When you were there, there were 2 million chimps, I think, and then it went down to 150,000. Where are we today? Over the whole of Africa, you mean? Yeah. Well, nobody knows exactly how many chimpanzees there are, but they are in danger, and they're more endangered in some areas than others. And it's that sort of picture across Africa. So you've been a leader trying to keep things from getting worse, and your main approach has been to fight for land conservation. When did that start? Well, I went to a conference which I helped to start in America in 1986, And one of the sessions was on conservation. It was shocking. I mean, I guess we all knew there was deforestation and so on. But the extent of it hadn't penetrated, certainly hadn't penetrated me. And there was also a session on conditions in places like medical research labs, which we can go into, but it was horrible, horrible, horrible. And learning about the bushmeat trade, the chocolate snares. I left the conference as an activist. I went as a scientist, planning to carry on with this wonderful life out in the rainforest, learning about the chimps, having students. And I left knowing I had to do something, but I didn't know what to do. So talk about that, the sort of the brass tacks of that moment. What pushed you so hard? You were at this conference, which was where? It was... Chicago. Chicago. What was the thing that struck you that you were like, no? Well, remember that to start off with, 
I wasn't a scientist. I never dreamt of being a scientist. I wanted to be a naturalist. I wanted to live with animals and write books about them. And then Leakey pushed me into getting a PhD, which actually I'm really glad I did, because it taught me to think objectively, which I love. But I refused to believe that scientists had to be cold and shouldn't have empathy with their subject. I rebelled against that. Um, so it, the, the shock was seeing what was happening to the environment in Africa and the shock of seeing how chimpanzees are closest relatives who can have feelings and emotions like ours, who have very astute intelligence, the way that they were treated in medical research, circus, entertainment, and so on. I think it was the, the seeing secretly filmed footage of chimpanzees in five-foot by five-foot cages, maybe for 20 years, just bare cages alone, these very social beings alone with nothing to do, boredom. It was horrible, and I knew that they'd done so much for me. I had to try and do something for them. So I didn't make the decision. People say, was it hard? I didn't make it. I always say it was a bit like, you know, St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Something happened and he started one person and ended up another. And that's what happened to me. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with couples therapist Esther Perel, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Jane Goodall after the break. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if the sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. When you have this much fame, because you had a lot of, since the National Geographic stuff came out and all the movies, you were a well-known person. You obviously had moral authority. You had a sense of power. How did you use that power? Well, when, you know, when I began, I didn't have those feelings. I didn't really understand what had happened to me. I mean, I didn't have power. I didn't have any of that. 
to me. I was, and I still am, just me. I'm just Jane. I'm here where I grew up. And then this kind of iconic status was thrust upon me. And I was at first very, I hated it. I wanted to hide from it. Why? Because I didn't like, I mean, I didn't feel I deserved it. But then at a certain point, I realized that this could help the cause that I was so passionate about, which basically from the beginning was to help people understand that animals are not just things, that they're sentient beings, they have feelings. And that, you know, that is a passionate ruling of my life, but equally protecting the environment. We're poisoning the land with our conventional agriculture. We're putting chemical poisons down. We're polluting the ocean. We're destroying the forest, which which along with the ocean are the great lungs of the world absorbing CO2 and giving us oxygen. One of the things you talked about years ago was the increasing incursions from China, taking forests, taking minerals, all kinds of things. Has that improved at all, or do you feel it's still a threat? Well, you know, China is a large country with a growing economy. And yes, they are causing havoc in many developing countries, taking their resources They've learned about conservation within China. It's a huge change from when I first went there in the mid-90s. And animal protection, all these things. But they're taking resources from other countries for their own development. But is that any different from European colonialism? Is it any different from the big multinational corporations today? No, it's not. And so it's a whole area that we need to address, not pointing fingers, but working out ways ahead. So a lot of these things are about education, about, again, moral authority. There is more a a different confrontational style of activism growing here in this country and around the world, like Greta Thunberg and others. Is it possible these days to be Jane Goodall? Do you really still believe in that? I totally believe in it because really because of the young people. I mean, everywhere I go, I'm I'm not going now, but I I see it on these kind of Zoom things, this young people with shining eyes wanting to tell Dr. Jane what they're doing to make the world a better place. I want to help all animals. I can't. I, you know, I can't do that. But out there in this huge group of young people, hundreds of thousands of them, there's always somebody who wants to help a turtle there's another group that wants to help moon bears. You know, all of it, it, it's out there. When passion moves to anger, because you're seeing that with a lot of groups, that they've had enough. They want the system to change completely and not cooperatively. Well, I don't blame them. They, they have had enough. But I will never, ever believe that the way for change is confrontation and aggression because people change when you reach the heart. And so, you know, when people ask me, what do you do when you meet somebody who's behaving in a way that you really dislike or something? Try and find a connection. Maybe they have a dog or a cat or a horse or a child or something. Just for one minute, if you have a short time to talk to them. And then stories. Tell stories. So when I went into the labs that I accused of treating the chimps badly, which they were, 
I showed pictures of Gombe and how the chimps are and how they're lying around and grooming each other and playing. It got to the people's hearts. And I got this lesson early on, don't make high up people lose face because it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. When you look at the protests, though, especially environment, do you think that helps too or not at all? Oh, I think it helps. It raises awareness, no question about it. I mean, Greta's raised awareness in many, many people without any question of doubt. So let me let me put that to you. You were standing in front of President Trump. How would you tell him a story? How, he is one of the more partisan figures, creates a lot of something, like just something. What would you say? You have five minutes or two minutes or one minute. Yeah, apparently the attention span is less than that. But anyway, I, I would actually refuse this opportunity because... I don't think he'd listen. I truly don't. And it's a waste of time when people won't listen. But he's one of the very few people. I would talk to President Xi. I definitely would. It probably wouldn't do any good. But I would be fascinated to talk to him. I mean, What would you say? What would I say? Well, I, I would congratulate him on all the amazing improvements he's made for people's livelihood. I would not talk about his treatment of the Muslim community because, you know, you want people to be on your side and change. And I would talk about the amazing things like banning ivory trade and now putting pangolins up at top-level protection and all the things he's done for the environment. And, you know, hopefully if you approach people like that, then they want to do more. That's at least that's maybe stupid. It may be naive, but with many, many people in high positions, it's worked. It works for them. But Trump is a chimpanzee too far, I guess. I don't know what. What is? How do you look at it? No, don't compare Trump with a chimpanzee because it's terribly <laughs> rude to okay. the chimpanzee. Um, so, so you're not put off by this partisan time we're in. You feel like it's overcomable. You know. The Trump administration has repealed so many environmental protections, and this is my main passion. I am shocked, horrified, opening up, you know, the, the oil reservoirs in um, Alaska. Shocking. Drilling in, the, in various parts of the ocean is shocking. And if this goes on, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's not just America that's going to suffer. The whole flipping world, and then this Bolsonaro. And so many, you know, this swing to the far right and this, this it's got to be the bottom line and it's unlimited economic d- development. And how do we move from this pandemic into this new green uh, economy, which everybody is saying we need to do? We do need to do it. I don't know how to do it, but we do need to do it. So who are your environmental heroes? Well, I mean, it started off with Rachel Carson actually, when she wrote Silent Spring. And then I went and stayed with Margaret Owen, who helped to save the sea otters from extinction. And then I wrote this book, Hope for Animals and Their World, and I met so many amazing, incredible people. My last reason for hope, the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle what seems impossible, won't give up and succeed. And it's so inspiring to see that an animal or an environment on the brink of extinction or destruction can be saved. 
and has been. There's many examples. And my big problem with the media today is this concentration on the bad. There's so much bad, yes, but there's so much good that doesn't get reported. And I think, you know, today I would say that more people are aware of what we're doing to the planet than ever before. And the reason they're not taking action is they feel helpless, don't know what to do. My job is to give people hope by telling them that every one of us makes a difference every single day. So talk about your legacy. You're 86 years old. You look like you're going to last well beyond me. Um, What do you want to do with the rest of your life? I want to go on doing what I'm doing. I want to get to this tipping point. I also want to create an endowment because people are relying on me. I go to a different country and help them raise money for their programs, et cetera, et cetera. So a big concentration now on raising an endowment. It's all set up. We're ready to go. Of course, the pandemic comes. Maybe it's a very bad time for that, you know, but it's still there and I will do it because I'm determined that I want some money to make sure that these programs that I'm so passionate about that work. I'm passionate about them because they've been proven to work. And I want them not to disappear, slowly fade away when I'm gone. So when you look back on your life, where would you like to be if there wasn't COVID? Where would you like to be sitting on Lake Tanganyika, drinking a whiskey? Where would you like? I've heard you like to drink whiskey by the lake. Well, I, you know, one reason I have to have whiskey, it, <laughs> it actually does help your voice when you've overused your voice. I heard apples work the same, but whiskey's fine. Four opera singers who swear uh-huh. by it. And, uh, one pop singer. So it's not just me. Where would I like to be? Right now, close your eyes. Where would you like to be? Close my eyes. I would love to be sitting on the beach at Gombe without tourists, with the people who are working there now throughout the, the COVID experience, looking at, out over Lake Tanganyika, looking at the mountains on the other side, and knowing that up behind me, the chimps are making their nests and the baboons are climbing up into their trees. It's a beautiful place to be. Dr. Goodall, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time to do this. Well, I love talking to you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elarbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Paula Schumann, with music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Renan Borelli, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast, so subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a glass of whiskey... Download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. You'll get episodes every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening.